Well, what's up, fam? What up? How you guys doing today? Yes, it's a wonderful, wonderful Sunday. If you don't know, I want to make sure you do know, we had snow this week, and I was happy about it. I prayed that one in, didn't I? It was cute. It wasn't enough, but... We had a little bit of snow. Either way, I was excited about it. I hope you were too. Uh, but as you can see, I am not Pastor Stan. Uh, Pastor Stan is out hunting with his family. Well, I guess they're finished hunting now. They tagged out. They, they got them all, so we're excited for them. Um, but in other news with Pastor Stan and Chris, next weekend, I know it's getting live streamed and they're probably watching, but next weekend, uh, we're going to celebrate Pastor Stan and Chris' 25-year anniversary as lead pastors... <laughs> here at Change Life Church in CUNA. We want to celebrate them, so I am asking you, come out next week, invite your friends, your family, your dog, your cat. If you've got a parrot, bring it. I don't need anything. I'm just kidding. But uh, we want to celebrate them next week uh, for 25 years of faithful service as our lead pastors. That is an achievement. Uh, you know, being in ministry, I meet pastors all the, all the time. I hear of 15 year, I hear of 20 years commonly, well, not as common, but 25 years, that is a number that you really don't hear all that often. We want to celebrate them uh, next week. So please make sure you put it on your calendar. Be here next Sunday, 9.30 or 11 to celebrate uh, them. Uh, he's also going to be preaching. Uh, I just kind of gave it away because no, I know he's watching the live stream. Uh, he is preaching, but we are going to sneak a little celebration in there for them. Have a good time with them and celebrate. So please, please, please come on out. Uh, but I want to say thank you to Pastor Stan. I know because like I said, I know you're watching. Thank you for sharing your pulpit and let me speak this morning. I really, really appreciate it. Well, today's sermon, uh, I want to dive into some and, and I could not think of a title for my sermon. And Pastor Stan is always really good with his titles. He got some catchy phrase and, and I just, I'm not. So the title of my sermon today, Alfalfa Sprouts. <clears throat> because why not, right? Like just Alfalfa Sprouts. Uh, no, it's, it's the importance of understanding God. And I want to dive into a, a scripture today uh, that probably you've heard before. I can almost guarantee you've heard before, but I want to bring some context to it and make sure that we are understanding exactly what God is saying to us. Uh, but to get there, I need to set it up. And so when I was a kid, uh, it feels like an eternity ago, uh, my mom took me to this cafe restaurant. It felt like she took me there all the time. Um, it was a restaurant called Labu. Anybody know Labu? Yeah. Yes. Okay. A couple, a couple of Californians know about Labu, uh, but it's kind of like a Panera. It's they, they make their own bread and pastries and sandwiches and salads and whatever, just terrible, terrible stuff. And, um, <clears throat> no, it took me and, and I ordered a, a kid's turkey sandwich, right? Thinking they would be like any other place where you go get a kid's sandwich and it's just this simple little piece of bread a hint of mustard and some turkey, right? Like a sliver of turkey. Um, but no, they put bread, mustard or mayo, whatever was on the sauce, the smallest sliver of turkey you could ever imagine. And then like that much alfalfa sprouts. And then they topped it off with another piece of bread that just kind of floated on a cloud of alfalfa sprouts. It's like, what in the world is this sandwich? This is not a sandwich. This is terrible. I am a kid. Who puts alfalfa sprouts on a kid's sandwich? Californians do, right? It was terrible. It was like, what in the world is this monstrositous thing that uh, you're asking me to eat? No, I'm sorry. I'm a little more bougie than that. I'm not eating your alfalfa sprouts, right? Well, I guess a little less bougie than that. I wanted nothing to do with that sandwich, but my mom said the infamous line that I'm sure you have said to your kids, eat it, it's good for you, right? Like, 
No, you're going to eat that broccoli. You're going to eat that asparagus. You're going to eat that vegetable or whatever it is, that zucchini, because it's good for you, right? And so my mom, she tells me, Stevie, eat it. It's good for you. Well, I took off all the alfalfa sprouts and ate my sandwich as a normal kid would because I was not going to put those things in my mouth and consume them. And to this day, I still disagree with my mom. Alfalfa sprouts are not good for me, and they taste terrible. I'm not a fan. Thank you. Thank you. See, he's like, you're preaching now. Come on, right? (laughs) Yeah, alfalfa sprouts are bad, but they are a vegetable, and they probably are good for you. I'm sure there's someone in the room here today who is a, a, a nutritionist, and you know all about the foods and all about what's good for you, and you can name 10 benefits of eating alfalfa sprouts. I don't want to hear it. But one point or another, you have sat down with your kid, uh, just like I do now with my kids, and I tell them to eat their vegetables because it's good for you, right? I learned nothing of how I should parent my kids. I just transferred it on to what my mom did. I'm doing it too. Eat your vegetables. They're good for you. My kids don't want to hear it, but I make them eat it, right? Even though I don't. And I pray while I sit there and eat my broccoli. Lord, turn it into a cinnamon roll as I bite it. Because I believe you can do anything, Lord, and he never does. But I will continue to eat my carrots and my vegetables because it is good for me. Because why? We all do certain things. We make decisions on things because we do believe it is good for us. As a foodie, but also someone who loves to work out, I will sometimes do like intermittent fasting because I want to keep my calorie count low because I got to keep this father figure, this dad bod in check, right? So I make decisions on my food based on that sometimes because I think, hey, this might be good for me to do this. I eat my vegetables. I drive below the speed limit only when I'm towing, right? I had to sneak that in there. Because I believe that in most cases, a car traveling slower is going to have a better outcome in the, in, the, in the situation of an accident than the car that is traveling faster. So I travel just a little bit slower only when I'm towing. Otherwise, you will see my Bronco cruising down Deer Flat, Right? I treat my wife with respect and love because I love her so very much and I believe the outcome in home will be better for me. It is purely selfish. I'm just kidding. I love and respect my wife because of who she is. The benefit is that uh, hopefully it's all good in the house too, right? But we, we, we make decisions because we think, oh, this is going to be good for me. We eat our broccoli because we think, oh, this is going to be good for me. It never is, but we just think that it is, Right? Whatever it may be, we make decisions like this every single day in every area of our lives. We try to think of what will be best for us, and we make decisions that go accordingly. And I want to dive into the scripture today that I can say, as I already have, I'm sure many of you have heard this scripture before. Um, You've probably heard a sermon on it before. It is probably just a little less popular than John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. I have many people know John 3:16. You don't have to go to church to know John 3:16. And I would say this scripture that we're going to dive into today rivals this scripture. Rivals John 3:16 a little bit. It's not as popular but it is it is up there. You can go to a hobby lobby and you will see this on their artwork, you will see it on the walls, you will see this scripture everywhere. You will find this scripture we're going to talk about today everywhere. The only problem is that I'm afraid it is not completely understood. And that is where the caveat we fall into today. Do we really understand God and his word? And before I read it, I need you and I to be on the same page with something. I'm going to say something, 
It might scare you a little bit, but I'm just going to tell you right now, the Bible, as amazing as it is, as much authority in my life as I have given it, and as I have given my life to the study and the declaration of this Bible, you and I must understand this Bible was not written to us. This Bible was written for us. There's a big difference because every time Moses or Obadiah or Paul or David or some scribe sat down and started writing words to paper, they were writing to somebody. They were sending a letter. They were sending a book. They were writing down what God had done so that the person who would receive it would understand what God was doing. And when we fail to realize that the Bible was not written to us, we will put our own culture and our own context to it. And that's a dangerous place. Because when you have a text without context, all you have is a con. You don't understand what it's really saying. Culture and custom is through this entire Bible. All the books of the Bible have culture and custom all in them. And when we fail to realize that this Bible was not written to me as an American living in 2022, I will never understand it. I have to understand it was written to somebody. My job is to study it out to see what God was saying for me to understand what was going on. That is our job as Christians. The Bible was not written to you, but it was written for you. The original writers of the Bible, they knew it. They were writing to somebody. They were not writing to you. I'm sorry, but you were not that important to them. Just being honest. <laughs> they were writing to someone else who was alive 4,000 years ago. Moses was writing these words down or whoever was writing these words down to someone who was alive. There was an intended audience and we were not it. So given this knowledge, whenever you read something that says God said to them, you must understand that God did not say it to you. God was speaking to someone else. Our job is to pull the principles of what God said out of it and how it applies to our life as a follower of Jesus now. God, so, so the scripture reads today, God said something to somebody, but it was penned by Jeremiah for us to understand why God said it to them. Okay, do, are we on the same page? Yes. Let's get into it. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses four through 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and become their fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare." For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. If you know the scripture, read it with me. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. You guys know that scripture. You have heard it before. I heard it so many times growing up. I heard it nonstop for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. See, I have it memorized. I've heard it millions of times. 
I'm almost certain many of you have heard this sermon, or this, this scripture come up in sermons or, or just in conversation as you're talking with someone. Jeremiah 29, 11 sneaks its way in there. However, I'm not sure that it's always brought with context. And what I just did by reading verses 4 through 10 before verse 11 is I gave you context. Because all of a sudden, when I realized the Bible was not written to me, that God didn't say to Stevie, for I know the plans I have for you, Stevie, plans for good and plans for future and a hope. God didn't say that to me. He said that to the Israelites. My job is to understand what God means when speaking to the Israelites, because as he speaks to the Israelites, I can see how he's going to work with me in 2022. That is our job as Christians we have got to understand the context of what was written. It was not written to me, it was written for me. So reading this scripture right off the bat, given context, we learn a few things. There's four things that I just, right off the top of my head as I was studying, here's four things that I learned that I did not know before. Number one, it was written to people in exile. Jeremiah 29, 11 was written to a group of people who were in exile. Number two, God says, I sent you into exile. King Nebuchadnezzar was the, the king in Babylon, and he's the one who made it happen. He's the one who took a, a people from uh, Israel and made them go into exile. But God is the one who takes credit saying, no, it's, it's me. I'm the one who sent you there. King Nebuchadnezzar, no, he had nothing to do with it. This is me sending you into exile. Number three, we learn this, that God tells them to mind who they're listening to. I could preach a whole sermon on minding who you're supposed to be listening to today, and I'm sure it'll be successful. It's not what I'm getting to right now, but you probably should be minding who you are listening to, okay? Number four, in their place of exile, God tells them to work hard. Amen. Every time I've heard Jeremiah 29, 11 growing up, I never understood any of that. I never got any of that. I just got, hey, God has good plans for me. Plans for a good future and a, and a great thing to hope for. Awesome. That's all I got out of it. Selfishly, it's how I embraced it. And I, I, I was reading the scripture and preparing for today. And, and as I was reading, I, this was, I had this moment with God. I got into an argument with him, okay? I was reading, I, I read verses four through 10 and I get to verse 11. I know it. I almost kind of like, you know, you get to, this should be real. You get to those verses that you just know by heart, right? And you kind of just not skip through it, but you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. you kind of speed read. Like John three sixteen. you get there, you speed read. John three seventeen. you slow back down, Right? But why? Because you know John 3, 16, right? You're kind of speed reading. So I got to verse 11. I started to speed read. Just being real. Okay, I'm sorry. Not perfect. And I get there before I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good. Stop. That's what I felt in my heart. Stop. And I was like, Lord, seriously? It's Jeremiah 29. This is elementary. Jeremiah 29, 11. Come on. I'm beyond elementary, Lord. Come on. I, I don't need to hear Jeremiah 29, 11, Lord. So I'm going to continue on. I went back to speed read. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good. Stop. I was like, Lord, why are you telling me to stop? I just felt this scratch in my heart. When I, when I read the word good, I just felt, kept on feeling the scratch. Just stop, stop, stop reading. It, it wasn't coming through clear enough, I guess. And all of a sudden, like a gong in my head, I hear this phrase, what does God consider good? Because when you stop and think about that question, it really helps you understand Jeremiah 29, 11. Because I think it's really easy for me to read, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for good, and put in what I think is good. Yeah, I, yeah that's easy. If, if I understand what good is, then certainly God understands what good is. 
and clearly we're on the same page. If I want to understand scripture, either as it has been taught or in its true meaning, I must first understand what God means when he says he has a good plan. And for just a minute, can we pause and put ourselves in the Israelite shoes as we think about this thought? I'm 34 years old. If God were to show up right now and say, hey, you're going in exile for 70 years, I'm just being real with you. I'd be 104 years old. By the time that 70 years is up, I'd be dead. Just, I, I, wanna, I wanna break 100. I really do. Like in life in general, I wanna break 100 just because I wanna flex on people who didn't. No, I'm, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, right? I, I just, I, I, would love, I would love to reach a century. Like that would just be super cool. But being realistic, given the world, uh, 104 doesn't seem too realistic nowadays. Just being honest. And so I look at that and I go, okay, so God, you just showed up through a prophet named Jeremiah and you said you have a good plan for me is to go to exile for 70 years. Um, Lord, I'm 34, that's 104. Uh, you're telling me I'm gonna die in exile. What part of that is good? Do you, do you see the tension that we have now when God says he has a good plan for these people and he sends them in exile? All of a sudden, does not sound like a good plan to his people. Hold on, you have a good plan to send me and exile? Lord, I don't know if you understand this, but a majority of us are not gonna make it out the 70 years. We're gonna die here. What part of that is good to you? What, what, Lord, what, what are you trying to do here? This, this does not sound like a good plan for me. I have a good plan. Lord, how about I write something down, I send it to you, you get approval, and I live that good plan. Yeah. Right? Because I, th I think we can negotiate on what is good here. God says, no, this is my good plan for you. If you and I were here at this time and this is what the prophet told us, I think we'd be pretty upset. I would not be excited about this. And what happens as I have really tried to drive home today, we try to read the Bible as if it was written to us in our American culture, 2022, when it was not. And the way I read this Bible selfishly growing up when I heard sermons, when I would study, when I would do anything, as I would speed read Jeremiah 29, 11, I read it as, for I know the plans I have for you, they are plans to fulfill the American dream. And that is not what God said. Amen. Not even close yeah. to what God said. For years, that's how I was taught it. It's how I embraced it. And I confused good, what I call good, with what God calls good. The word in Hebrew that God uses here is the word shalom. Many of you, if you've been in church, you've heard this word before. It means complete wholeness and peace. So could that mean prosperity? Well, yeah. Could that mean health? Yes. Could that mean happiness? Well, yeah, it's peace, all right? Does it mean an overwhelming abundance? No, it just means whole, right? It means 100% not 752%, right? My idea of good is a 752%. I'm just being real. I'm, I'm pretty sure you would probably agree with me. That's my idea of good, right? You ask me, Stevie, what, what is good? Go ahead. What is good? good? Happy wife, happy kids, healthy family, cash money in the bank, right? Like that just sounds, that sounds good, right? That just, that's a good plan. Let, let's do it, right? However, if you were to ask God that same question, you would probably get a wildly different answer. See, my idea is the 752% that isn't promised when God's is the 100% that is promised. That's his good plan, 100%. That means in the storm, there's peace. 
In the fight with your spouse, there's peace. In the argument with your kids, there's peace. In the midst when bills are due and there's no cash money in the bank, that's when there's peace. That's what God is saying here. He's saying wholeness of peace. He's not saying anything more and especially nothing less. But he is not promising 752%. He's promising 100% to the Israelites. That's what he's promising them. So my question as we get into this, what is your version of good compared to God's version of good? I knew what mine was. I could describe it. I could pen it like I just did. I, I could write it down. That'd be my version of good. But what is that compared to God's version of good? And as you ponder that question, I want to look at the few, uh, a few of the apostles who followed Jesus most closely in his time here on earth. And I want to look at the good plan that they received from God. But let's, let's look real quick. The apostle John has one of the wildest stories. He wrote five books in the New Testament including the last book, which is Revelation. One day he was boiled in oil, deep fried John, right? <laughs> However, he suffered no harm. They pulled him out of the oil and he was totally fine, not a mark on his body. So they threw him on an island called Patmos and they waited for him to die there alone in exile. That's actually where he wrote the book, Revelation. Thomas, another uh, disciple who became, became an apostle, he traveled to India, spreading the gospel further than any other disciple physically. He was martyred in India by four soldiers piercing him with their spears. North, south, east, and west, boom, dead. Does not sound enjoyable. Peter was crucified, but he said he was unworthy to die the same way as Jesus, so they crucified him upside down. Paul, in the same year that Peter was crucified upside down, he was beheaded by Emperor Nero. Andrew, another apostle, he was crucified. It is accepted that Philip, he led the, a wife of a Roman proconsul, a Roman like governor basically, led his wife to the Lord and she repented of her sins, became a Christian and uh, they had him beaten to death. Can you imagine that? You go to work tomorrow, you lead someone to the Lord and your boss comes in and beats you. That, well, okay, that's intense. <laughs> Matthew, Bartholomew and James are all believed to have been martyred in the areas where they ministered. Why, why all this death? What in the world about this is good. Did they not read Jeremiah 29, 11? Did they not understand that God has a good plan, something to hope for? I'm sorry, there is nothing hopeful about martyrdom. I'm just being real. Like, you're hoping one day to die for Jesus? Like, that does not sound fun. That does not sound good, but the apostles embraced it. Why? Why all the death, though? Well, Christianity was declared illegal. You could not be a Christian. If you were, you would face the consequences of the law of the land. Yet still, they pressed on because of God's good plan. Again, what is my version of good compared to God's version of good? And what I have learned is 2,000 years later, I'm learning a whole lot from Jesus. But also, as I look at the life of these apostles, I'm learning so much from them. And my faith is encouraged. Why? Because nobody would die for a lie. Nobody would willingly, like, as Peter's about to be crucified upside down, they put the nail to his wrist. I'm pretty sure Peter would be like, okay, dude, I'm sorry. I'm, you're right. I'm sorry. It was all a lie. We made it up, and we, just, we were just trying to, like, live life cool and, like, travel the world. It's all a lie, man. But they didn't do that. None of them did. Every single one of them allowed, allowed themselves to go through torture and pain because they would not give up on Jesus. That gives me so much encouragement 
encouragement and builds my faith 2,000 years later when I think, okay, if they made the sacrifice, I'll be willing to as well. I'm gonna stand firm for Jesus no matter what. Like it encourages me. It should encourage you that these guys would not bow down, right? And I don't have time today to mention all of those who have sacrificed so much, given so much and suffered so much. Read Hebrews chapter 11 if you really wanna get into it. They died so that we could receive the promise of peace in heaven, the shalom in heaven, not to misinterpret what God was saying. That's why they died, so that we could experience his peace. Because in the midst of their martyrdom, they had shalom. They had peace. They embraced it. So what does God consider good? Well, learning directly from the apostles today in their deaths, and they, how they serve Jesus regardless of what they would endure. I'd say the first thing that God is trying to produce in us is number one, developed character through obedience. That's it. That's the mo- one number one most important thing that God is trying to produce in his followers. Developed character through obedience. Obedience doesn't obey just when circumstances are good. Amen. Obedience obeys. <laughs> There's no, there's no tagline, there's no like extra, there's no comma there. Obedience obeys. The apostles obeyed. And let's remember the Israelites who this was written to, Jeremiah 29, 11, were cast into exile because of disobedience. So God in his good plan brings about discipline to his people to foster obedience in his people. This is something as a parent that I am really trying to focus on. See, when my kids mess up, they do something dumb or silly or, or foolish, which kids do, even 34-year-olds do. I've had to apologize to my kids. It's, my kids can either endure a punishment or they can endure discipline. See, uh, you, you look either way at it and, and you go, yeah, you're just training your kids. No, 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 no there's, there's a difference. See, when you, when you punish someone, it's, it's out of anger. And my kids sense that anger. However, when I discipline, I'm letting them endure the cause and effect of their actions. I'm allowing them to see, oh, no, this is the choice you made, so this is the bed you'll lie in. Amen. Amen. That's discipline. Yeah. You're, it's tough love. You're going to see what it's like now to make decisions like this, and you're going to endure that. When I, was, when I was really little, my mom would spank me, and I would say it hurts. It didn't hurt. I just said that she, she would stop. Right? <laughs> she, she couldn't spank to save her life. It was funny. <clears throat> right? But, uh, <laughs> excuse me. I would say it hurts, and, and she would say, yeah, messing up hurts. Messing, and that has stuck with me for my life. Messing up hurts. Choosing the wrong thing hurts. And as an adult, I, still, I understand that more now than I did when I was ever a kid getting spanked. Messing up hurts. Messing up causes you to experience discipline. God is into discipline. He's not into punishment. That, that comes when people have rejected him and they have to spend an eternity in hell. That's the punishment for rejection. However, we as children of God should be disciplined by God, and God is using exile to discipline his people, saying, you wanted disobedience, you wanted pagan practices, you wanted to live like them, so go live like them. And immediately they're all like, no, we didn't want to do this, Lord, please repent, we'll stop, we'll stop, we'll stop. And God's like, yeah, I have given you 29 chapters with Jeremiah the prophet to get it right. I have extended mercy. You have rejected my mercy. And now here comes discipline. You will go into exile. See, when we are obedient, even when we face tragedy, God calls it good. Why? 
because in that moment, we are not focused on what this life can give us. We are set with our, re- with our mind focused on the reality of heaven. We are people who are looking forward to a reward in heaven. We are a people who are looking for a city that cannot be made by man, but by God's hands himself. We are the people of faith. So God says, hey, if you suffer for doing the right thing, it's good because you're doing the right thing and your mind is focused on what's ahead, your hope for future. This is what God is trying to produce in us as his followers then and now. It's the same thing. He's trying to produce obedience in us through a disciplined life. God has a good plan and that plan will involve battles. It'll involve stretching. It'll involve struggle. You can take a rubber band. A rubber band sitting on a tabletop is useless. However, when you have something that you need to hold together, that rubber band all of a sudden becomes very important. And when it is stretched to its maximum potential, it's when it's its strongest. A little, little bit more and it will, it will break. But I believe that we should be like that rubber band. God uses things in our lives to stretch us, to grow us. Because why? When we are stretched, that's when we are our strongest because we were relying on the grace of our savior, Jesus Christ, to get through. That's when you're at your strongest, when the midst of the storm. So what is the good that God is trying to produce in us? Number two, to be walking in our purpose. So often we think that God is supposed to just solve our problems. Like we just pray and it's like, oh God, solve this this issue. I have A, B, C, and C, D going on today. Lord, I need you to handle it. In Jesus' name, amen. Right? You have like speed prayer. Kind of like, you know, I'm praying because I feel like I have to, so I'm just going to get through it, right? Don't act like you're not guilty, okay? I'm, I'm super guilty. Right? I'm like, Lord, please, this has to change. Amen. It's like, okay, Stevie, come on. He's like, I could just see him. Like, okay, you have so much to learn, Stevie. You're, that's cute, right? But God, God isn't there just to solve problems. He, he's there to help you grow. He's there to help you fulfill your purpose. That means there's, a, there's something about you involved in that. You see, salvation is the only free gift of God. Everything else requires your participation. Salvation is the only free gift. You have to do nothing to earn salvation. However, when it comes to walking in the promises of God, it requires your participation. If my people who are called by name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will come and heal their land right? It's your participation in that. We want God to heal America in 2022. I know that I do. Well, I need to be humble enough to pray and seek him and then he will come and heal the land. It requires participation. You cannot just do it yourself. See, take any professional athlete. They did not wake up one day and become the best NBA player. They did not wake up one day and go, wow, I guess I am just the best linebacker the NFL has ever seen right? That would never be something that I would say, but <clears throat> don't laugh. Like, you know, the, the, man, I hurt my feeling, but I only have one feeling left. Kim. It, 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 it's, a per, it's, a, it's a process of growth. You don't become the best in your field, in your career, just by waking up one day and going, oh, I know how to do all of this. This is simple and easy. Check the boxes. Let's go. No, you train and you practice and you work at it for years. I remember the first time that I preached, uh, I was at it was in Bible college and I'm there and I talked about Jesus walking on the water. I drowned that day. I'm just letting you know, like I was not like Peter at all. I was like, Lord, if I'd never have to do that again, I would be so grateful. No, I've spent years now practicing one preaching, 
But it's so much more than just getting on a platform, which I absolutely hate, by the way. Like, I've already thought a couple times while up here today, like, everyone's looking at me, this is really weird. Like, get off the stage, Stevie. Like, I ha I'm having those thoughts while I'm preaching, okay? <clears throat> and, and the first time I preached till now, you would say, wow, Stevie, you've grown so much, right? I still have so far to go. But it's not because I get on a platform and I talk in a microphone. It's because I sit in my office and I study, and I read and I pray and I ask God to show me how to communicate to people. God, God, what are the weaknesses that I have that I can relate to them in? And, and what are the areas that I've grown in that I can in, in, equip them to be stronger in? God, how, how can I communicate to the person who's hurting today? Would you show me how to relate that to my own pain so I can come from a place of empathy? God, God would you show me how to communicate to the person who has never been in church before? Could you just show me? I think that's the most important person in the room is the person who's never been to church before. So Lord, can you show me how to communicate and talk to and relate to that person? Would you show me? And then I read books. I read books on how to preach. I read books on how to present by secular artists, right? I, I, I want to learn how to communicate. And so I study communication, public speaking. I study that. Okay, it sounds incredibly boring. It is. It, oh my gosh, it's miserable. But if I'm going to give my life to declaring God's word, I had better know how to communicate. I had better be really good at it. I suck right now, by the way, but I am trying really hard to get better. All right? I know the weaknesses and flaws that I have. I don't need you coming up to me and telling me I said, um, 49 times. Okay? Your boy knows. <clears throat> right? But you study and you grow and you get better and you keep on working at it. Again, it takes time to develop the gift that God has given you. Salvation is the only free gift. Everything else requires your participation. I'm losing my voice. This is awesome. <clears throat> so what does God say to them in exile? He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take your wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters. A lot of sons and daughters in there. <clears throat> and multiply there. Do not decease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. What is God saying? Do work, son. Do work. Get after it. Let me tell you right now, we should pray like it depends on God and work like it depends on us Amen. because it does. Yeah. It completely relies 100% on God and it completely 100% relies on you. This is a marriage. It's not 50-50. It's 100% and 100%. Pray like it depends on him and work like it depends on me. <clears throat> what are we to do in these hard times of 2022? What are we supposed to do? Well, I'll tell you right now, you're supposed to build home and plant gardens. Build your home. Build it. Not a house. Build a home. Amen. A place for a family. Build it. Plant gardens. I'm not telling you to go home today and plant a tomato plant. No. <laughs> right? But what's he saying? Take what you have and work with it. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy the fruit of what happens when you work. <clears throat> He's saying do life. Get after it. Take care of what you need to do. Build your home and plant gardens. Make families. 
Give, give your sons to wives, get, get wives for your sons and get husbands for your daughters that they may continue on and, and multiply. Do not decease. What he's saying, pass on the traditions that I'm teaching you today. Pass on the message of hope that I am giving you today. That's what he's saying to do. What should we do? We should seek the welfare of the city. Cuna should know that there is a church who prays for it. Cuna should know that there's a church who serves it. CUNA should know that they are, there is a church and a people who are here for it. CUNA needs to know that. Does it? Does CUNA know we're here? That is our job. That is not Pastor Stan's job. That is not Pastor Stevie's job. No, no, no. That is our job together. To pray for this city, to love this city. God was not speaking to just the priests in Jeremiah 29. He was speaking to the people Pray for your city. Pray for its welfare. Build homes and plant gardens. Do well. What, what is our purpose? Here it is. You can sum it up right here. You can draw a circle around it. Do life well. Build families and seek the benefit of our city. The avenue in which you do that, that's fine. Choose it. Dentist, you want to be a doctor, a veterinarian, you want to work at KJ's, you want to work at DMB. I don't care where it is, but seek the benefit of our city. You choose where. You choose what. That's your choice. However, we should be doing life well. We should be building families, and we should be seeking the benefit of our city. That's your purpose. Where you want to do that, you choose. But that is our purpose right there. I believe that the good plan God has for us is circled right around that right there. So what is the good that God is trying to produce in us? Number three, remove the sin. Again, sin and disobedience are the reasons for exile in the first place for these people. And God in his mercy sends them into exile to correct the sin. Saying, oh, if you want that so badly, then you can go and have 70 years of it and enjoy it there because you will not bring this to me. God is now trying to produce this in us. Remove the sin before the sin removes you. That's what God's trying to produce in us. That I would be someone who's removing sin from my life before the sin removes me and I get sent to exile. Now, I'm not thinking that God's gonna actually send people to exile. I'm not saying you're gonna get sent some far off land. That's not what I'm saying. But would he remove some things in your life? Yeah. Why? Because I've, I failed to remove the sin, so therefore my sin has removed me. <clears throat> sin will cause you to go further than you wanted to, and it'll keep you there a lot longer than you wanted to stay. Mm-hmm. I don't have time today to talk about what I was wrapped up in, what I was doing, how far it took me, how deep I went. I, and yet still God said, I'm, I'm calling you. Like, what? But God, you don't understand that this is what I did. And God's like, yeah, just, just remove it. I forgive it. Just, just remove it now. Just come on. Let's go. We got work to do. We got to build families. We got to build homes. We got to seek the benefit of our city, Stevie. Come on. You can't wallow in that anymore. It's a thing of the past. I think God's saying the same thing to you right now. It's a thing of the past. You got to let it go. Remove it. Just, just be done. He forgives it. Just be done with it. Move on from it. Cut it off. Cut ties with it. Do whatever you have to do. Anything that keeps you from him is a hazard. Remove it. 
See, we can't live in God's will and continue to follow our own will. It doesn't work. You can't do it that way. God wants to remove the destructive behaviors and the habits from our life before we get sent into an exile type situation. God does have a good plan for you, but it may not be what you thought. Remember the alfalfa sprouts? Terrible, terrible. I hate them. I don't think I've eaten alfalfa sprouts in 20 years. <laughs> they thank you. They are disgusting. But they do have the health benefit for you. They, they do supplement your body in a way, just like every vegetable does. Just like anything that you know is good for you, yet we reject what is good because of our idea of what is good. The cinnamon roll is better. And God's saying, no, 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 I'm trying to discipline you. Eat some alfalfa sprouts today. I'm not telling you to go home and eat alfalfa sprouts. I'm telling you to embrace that which you know is good for you, even though it may not sound appealing or fun or good. Embrace the alfalfa sprouts in your life. And by reading just a few more verses from this scripture, we really start to understand what God says when he, gives, when he says, I give you a future and a hope. Because it doesn't stop at I have good plans for you. I give you a future and a hope. A future and a hope of what, again, if I have a text without context, all I have is a con. So what is this future and what is this hope? Well, I have to read verse 12 and 13. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. I'm sorry. Take all the good as I describe it and just give me that instead. If I can seek him and I, you tell me I can find him and have a relationship with him, what does God consider good? God considers a life spent and lived with him, with him. So often I think, God, I'm gonna do this for you. I stopped doing things for God a long time ago. I do things with God now. Amen. I don't get on a platform and preach for God. I do it with God. I don't get up here and play guitar. I do it with God as terrible as I am at that thing. <laughs> I don't want to do things for him. I want to do things with him because that's the good that he promised, that I would be with him, that I would seek him, that I would find him. What, what, what is this future? What is this hope? What is the good that God has planned for us? It's Jesus. Jeremiah was talking about a time when, hey, in those days you will call upon me and I will listen. Why? Because I'm going to send a bridge to come and to heal the land and he's going to speak. He's going to die on a cross and three days later I'm going to rise him from the dead and you will have a relationship restored with me. That is the good that I have planned for you. That you and I would be friends. Because Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 22 is all about what God did to get you back to him. That's what the entire Bible's about. If you think the Bible's about anything else, it's not. What did God do to get you to him? It's found in these pages. That God would send his son, his only son, to die on a cross for our sins so that we could have a relationship with him. That sounds like a really good plan to me. And if that means that I'm gonna to have to suffer and go through some hard times, then so be it. Because you're telling me I can hang out with the creator of the universe? There's not a better gift I could possibly think up or imagine. With every head bowed and every eye closed in this room, you're here today and 
you're in the tension right there. And you're saying, okay, God, I, I didn't know I could know you. I didn't know that Jesus, that you loved me that much that you would die for me. I didn't know that you cared so much that, that you would rise from the dead and give that life, that powerful life to me. And you're in the room today and you say, you know, I've never asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins, but I've, I've never called him Lord. I've never reached out to Jesus and said, would you be my Lord? Would you be my savior? If that's you, would you do me a favor and, and raise your hand real quick, please? Anybody in the room? Thank you for that hand. Here's what, here's what I wanna do. As a family, can we please just repeat this after me? Say, Father in heaven, I repent. I'm turning from my ways. I'm gonna live my life for you. Jesus, son of the living God, I declare you are my Lord. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna live my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we lift up our hands and shout? and celebrate that one person who made that decision today. Seriously, nothing, nothing better. So, so excited. Appreciate every single one of you guys.